Today we're going to meet the troublemaker and the terrier. Jackie, I can see why they call you the troublemaker, but that's a badge of honour, right? (laughs) Every journalist wants to be a troublemaker. Oh, I wear it with pride. You know, I'm pleased because it means that I'm making waves, I'm making a difference. And local government has very little transparency. Someone's got to shine a light on it. Look, you don't look very terrier-like, I have to say, Carol. <laughs> Funny you should say, because I'm only about five foot three at the best of times, and whenever I meet people in face-to-face, I go, you're the terrier? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all this time they said I was slightly scared of you, and I was like, oh, God, please don't <laughs> scared of me. But that's what terriers are like. They're short, but they, they act vicious. <laughs> Both of them are one-woman news outlets devoted to getting local information to their very different communities. A lot of the time I do think, why do I keep going? But it, is, it does come from that core part of you, I think, that drives you as a journalist, which is you you have to see it through and you know that to, to get to the bottom of the story, you just have to put that endurance in. Terrier-like qualities are good to have. I used to have my phone by my bed and it would ping at, you know, 3am in the morning and there'd be a fire in Lane Cove. And now I've had to just turn it off at 10 and get it back on at 6 because otherwise it was 24-7. People do burn out because it's just you. And you're very passionate about it too. You've got to be. And that passion can be a good thing, but it also can be a very tiring thing. But really, on the on the opposite side, you should see the beautiful emails I get from people saying, I'm sitting here alone at home, I'm in isolation, but I, I feel that I'm connected to the community because I read your excellent newsletter. And that's lovely. Look, I have to confess that when we first decided to do an episode on local and regional journalism, I thought it was going to be a depressing journey through an increasingly empty landscape. After all, in the last few years, hundreds of newsrooms have shut down in suburban and regional Australia, and it's the same story across the world. They've become victims of the brutal fight for advertising revenue. News Corp has announced it will stop the presses on more than 100 of its titles. Suburban and regional papers will go online only or be axed altogether. When news has been an important source of local news for decades. In 2019, it closed local newsrooms in Dubbo, Orange, Albury, Wagga, and now even more are set to go. The pandemic has only added to those woes as local news outlets have been buffeted by the viral storm. Within weeks of Australia's first COVID lockdown in April 2020, more than 200 regional and community newspapers announced they could no longer keep their presses running. And since then, more have continued to fold. So what can we learn from the terrier and the troublemaker? And is there a roadmap for how local and regional journalism can survive? This is Journo, a podcast from the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. I'm Nick Bryant, and on Journo, we look at how news is made, how it's framed, and the complex issues facing the media in a time of dizzying change. In the Cove News... How do you find out on a daily basis what's going on in Lane Cove? I have been head down, bum up, because the COVID news has just been coming thick and fast. (laughs) 
On Sydney's leafy and lace curtain lower North Shore, Jackie Barker's on a mission. I've set up a hyperlocal media organisation in Lane Cove, which encompasses a website, Facebook page, close Facebook group, Instagram, podcast, Twitter and a newsletter. And it's all about, unashamedly, all about Lane Cove. Jackie, you become a, a media conglomerate by the sound of things. <laughs> yeah. And why did you set it up? There's a lovely story, I think. The origin story involves coffee. Yes. It does. I used to work as a high-powered corporate solicitor and it got to the stage where I really needed a break. So I took a, a year off and I was walking down this little laneway in Lane Cove and I saw this guy opening up a coffee shop and I thought, wow, this is really sort of Melbourne laneway vibe. So I'm Lane Cove. I took a photo of him and went home and, and put up a, a Facebook page called In The Cove, all about Lane Cove. And I said, oh, wow, we've got a new coffee shop. From then, I sent it out to my friends and said, hey, I'm just going to be the Lane Cove local who knows everything. And they sent it to their friends and, you know, we had a 1,000 likers and then we had 10 and now we've got 20,000. And at that point, Jackie, you realised that this could be something bigger than just me recommending coffee shops. This could be a vital pillar of the local community, which is essentially what In The Cove has become. And people started saying, could, could I ask you about this? What do you know about this? And then I realised that people were really thirsty for local news and they started raising issues with me and I went, oh, okay, I'll look into that. And then I started attending the Lane Cove Council meetings and realising, oh, my gosh, this is democracy in action. We've got real trouble. <laughs> and, um, and took it from there. And when people raised issues, I investigated them. And Jackie, one of the things that you noticed at these local council meetings was that you were the only reporter there. I mean, work that used to be done by the local newspaper wasn't being done anymore. That's correct. When I first started, I did notice that there used to be a scribe at the back and things would turn up in the in the local newspaper and then that just vanished. And more and more, I noticed that the local newspaper really wasn't covering anything in Lane Cove unless it, a press release was put out. And I thought, this is not right. People need to know what's happening at their local level. So you started attending council meetings. You started looking much more closely at the council's work, scrutinising what they were up to. And I understand that you became a bit of a, a thorn in their side. <laughs> yes, I, I got the nickname, The Troublemaker. And then I was told that I was asking way too many questions and that I had to be limited to two questions a week because they just didn't have the resources to follow through on my many questions. I thought, this is ridiculous. So one day I wrote something on the Facebook page and said, oh, could someone just ask counsel about this because I'm not allowed to? And as luck would have it, Alan Sunderland, who is a very respected journalist and former editorial director at the ABC, saw this and he was outraged. And he wrote an opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald pointing out that this was really the way that journalism was going and that it wasn't appropriate for council to say only two questions a week. And he went and spoke to Lancove Council and they sort of backpedalled. I mean, Jackie, that is an absolute shocker. There's no way that a established media organisation would be treated in that manner. Is, is that a problem of the hyper-local journalism scene? It's a problem of it being taken seriously by those that you're seeking to hold to account. Absolutely, yeah. For example, the other day I, I put through a media request to the district court and the lady came back to me and said, oh, no, we don't answer bloggers' questions. 
And I said, well, I'm not a blogger. I'm a citizen journalist and I have a long-established history of reporting news in Lane Cove. And then I had to show her all the things. That was a bit of a shock, but the outrage certainly changed their view on that because people said, you know, she's got a place in our society. There are 40,000 people who live in Lane Cove and 20,000 of them follow my Facebook page. So they want to know what's going on locally. And Jackie, tell us about some of the stories you've broken because, I mean, you've actually got a, a list of stories that a lot of seasoned journalists would be proud of. And, you know, let's remember your background. You were a corporate lawyer. Uh, you were new to journalism. But, you know, you've been breaking some big stories. Well, probably one of them was that our local senior ranger was arrested and charged by Border Force and New South Wales Police for importing gun parts and also having in his possession illegal weapons. And it was reported in the news, but what they had failed to report, this was a person who held a very senior position. He was a senior ranger in Langcove Council. This man could turn up at your doorstep any time of the day or night because he's got those powers. So I followed that story through and he did plead guilty. One of the shocking things that came out of the transcript after I ordered it was, one, he had prior offences for gun possession, and two, he had illegal weapons, battens, on council premises. Now, in any workplace in Australia, you would be marched out the door under workplace health and safety for having illegal weapons, yet this man is still employed. You describe yourself as a a citizen journalist. How do you see that as being different from a more conventional journalist? Well, obviously, I don't have the background training that one gets as a journalist hitting the beat, but I'm lucky in that my background is law, so I am very used to researching, and I think that is a real help because journalism is about researching and checking facts. Some days I read what I've written compared to what someone else has written, and theirs always flows so much more beautifully than mine, but I figure I've got the facts in there and that's what people want. So I think probably the difference is the fact that it's better written by a journalist than a citizen journalist. But I've always gone by the view that if it interests me, it probably interests other people. We begin with that big breaking news this morning. Facebook has followed through with its threat to ban Australian users from sharing news content on its site. I mean, Jackie, one of the big problems that you've faced in the last 12 months is being taken off Facebook's news feed Mm. and struggling to get the income from Facebook that bigger news organisations in Australia have managed to negotiate. Just tell us how all that happened and and what's been the effect of that. Yeah, so just woke up one day and and found that our news feed was completely gone and it was because we were considered to be a news organisation, which we are, and you couldn't even publish an article from your website that may not even have been news. It might have been some sort of fluff piece, for want of a better word. We were completely stymied. We couldn't get anything on Facebook, and that was. And Facebook is our number one source of getting out to people. And so what happened was that it became even more apparent to me that we needed to form an association so that we had some bargaining power problem is it's really hard to find hyperlocals because they are so granular so there's probably lots of jackie barkers out there all over australia but it's hard to find them so what you need to do right now is basically to come together to form some sort of association to have that collective bargaining power that you can take to facebook and say we need some money from you as well absolutely yeah i mean i did approach facebook <laughs> naively about five years ago and said, oh, I'm doing news, would love to speak to the head of Facebook News, never heard from them, funny about that. 
Yet, you know, we drive a lot of traffic to Facebook, so we should be in the mix. When COVID hit, all of the local community newspapers, they all stopped publishing. Three of the local newspapers came back, but they are basically now just real estate listings. So people just wouldn't get the local news. And I think people like getting the local news. So Jackie Barker's suburban Sydney reporting fills one important local news gap. In country Victoria, Carol Altman doggedly fills another. Well, Nick, I run a thing called The Terrier, which is an online-only, I guess you'd say hyper-local, I prefer community-focused news outlet in Warrnambool, Victoria. So a small regional town, and it's a one-person operation, and I am it. And Carol, the Terrier is called the Terrier. For what reason? That was my nickname when I worked in newspapers in Adelaide. I became known unofficially as the Terrier because (laughs) I wouldn't give up. And most Terriers tend to be fairly determined little souls. And is that the spirit, the Terrier spirit, that you have to bring to this kind of project? You're running a a local news organisation as a one-woman band You have to be terrier-like, I suppose, and and just not give up. Pretty much. That's it, Nick. And I think in particular what I do is I have quite a narrow focus, really. I'm not – I could never intend to be an entire news organisation providing all sorts of news across the spectrum. What I have tried to do is to pursue particular issues, and I do so, I hope, with a determination and a a vigour that comes with a terrier-like nature. So I've found with the investigations that I've pursued that they have all taken – each of them have taken time, diligence – commitment and many, many, many hours of work. And you've been looking at things like the use of credit cards by the local council. You've been looking at local environmental issues. You've been looking at aged care facilities in your locale. I mean, these are issues, obviously, that are vitally important. I wonder, Carol, is anybody else doing that kind of investigative work that you're doing right now? Are are any local newspapers, sort of traditional local newspapers there doing what you're doing? Well, Nick, you've hit upon exactly why I started the Terrier in the first place. I noticed that the amount of investigative work going on through our local news uh, outlets was very minimal, if anything at all. And that's not a criticism. It's just an observation of what the reality is now for our regional areas in particular. And one of the things that I've noticed, the local newspaper like all regional newspapers has suffered so many cuts, they just don't have the staff all the experience, perhaps all the time, particularly to dig into these sort of issues that I'm looking into. And that's where I thought I want to go into that space and I want to give that a go and see what I can bring to that with my skills that I've developed over my career. And uh, so far, so good. I think the community has responded and said, this is what we want to see more of. Carol, I'm intrigued to know how you plan to stay open. One of the things that we know about hyperlocal journalism is the energy that it requires. And what we've seen is burnout is a real problem, especially in operations like yours, which is solely reliant on you. Has that been a problem, this idea of fatigue, this idea of of burnout? You're pretty much volunteering your time, to be honest. You're not doing a lot of this for money. You get a little bit here and there if you're lucky. I am a one-stop shop, as I say. When you ring up the IT department, I answer the phone. If you ring up the the cleaning department, I answer the phone. (laughs) So it's setting yourself up for exhaustion, no doubt about it. Exhaustion is a real problem, and I've dealt with that myself more so this year than in the past, I'll be honest, because the issues I've covered, I had five or six big issues that I pursued, and I'm starting to feel the fatigue of that. 
I should also mention there's an emotional fatigue about working in a small town too that you forget, Nick, when you work for big organisations. You bump into the people you're writing about. There's a pressure to perhaps not write about these things. You have friendships that get tested. You don't get invitations to the Christmas drinks that you were perhaps getting before. (laughs) And there's that kind of pressure as well. And that's an emotional pressure perhaps that adds to the level of fatigue that you feel. So all those things combined make it a tough road. But again, the terrier in me refuses to give up until I've absolutely, (laughs) absolutely given it my best shot. I mean, good on you, Carol. But I mean, how do you feed that terrier? How do you keep going financially? (laughs) Uh, I mean, what's the model? The truth of the matter is, Nick, I probably wouldn't be able to do this unless I had some kind of financial security behind me to start with. I don't have a lot of overheads or expenses in my life at this point. So that's allowed me the freedom to do what I do. However, I have also set up a system which I trialled some time ago called the Tip Jar, the Terrier Tip Jar. And that was just to keep the stories free to read for everybody. And At my peak, when I was really, really working my guts out, so to speak, I got around about $27,000 worth of tips for that year. And I didn't think that was too bad at all, Nick, for something that's a a startup like myself, a one-person operation. But again, not sustainable to raise a family on. So, Cara, what you've said is really interesting. There's a pool of talent out there. There's a lot of journalists who have left sort of more mainstream titles. There is clearly an appetite for local news. I mean, there is no question about that. Mm Mm-hmm. But where it breaks down is obviously finding a mechanism to fund this. I mean, you presumably would like to see the government become more active in this. The government has been providing some startup money, some public interest news gathering grants, of which I got a very small portion of that. So all these things are starting to happen. Frustratingly, though, the really big dollars, and by this I mean the Google money and particularly the Facebook money, it's all going to the big players who are already established and are not doing the work that I'm talking about in the regions. So that's this vicious cycle. I thought, oh, at last, you know, the cavalry is arriving. But right now, people like me don't even get an invitation to the table because they don't even know we exist half the time. So I have to keep saying, hang on a second, we're out here doing the hard yards and we're filling in the gaps here. We're keeping it all keeping that investigative work going in particular, could we be part of some of that funding that's now swishing down the line? Are there days when you think, this is just too hard? This has just become unsustainable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because uh, just when you think you're, you're on a run and you think, okay, things are going okay, you get another whack. And it might be something like the decision the other day by the High Court, for example, that we now have to be responsible for all of the comments on our Facebook page, that if we get a comment on our Facebook page made by somebody, that I personally can be sued for that. And just when I think I haven't got one other thing to worry about, that's another thing to worry about. Today, some of the biggest media companies who posted the story on Facebook have had a rude awakening. The High Court said the companies were not passive and unwitting victims of Facebook. Having taken action to secure the... Extraordinary decision in the Australian High Court. The publisher is now responsible for the comments that are made about that piece on Facebook, not even on their own sites. It's an extraordinary ruling. It is an extraordinary ruling and an absolute game changer for someone like me. And it means I have to moderate those comments 24-7, which is virtually impossible. I, I now go to bed late and get up very early to try and keep an eye on it. And worse, you know, a comment can come up, as you know, Nick, three, four days later after the piece has even been posted and you've got to go back and make sure you check those comments. And I'll be honest with you, I've already had someone try and test those waters and 
obviously it's a great way to shut down someone like me. I don't mean to be blunt, but you can say, look, um, you know, there's a one little person operation. She's not going to be able to put her house on the line here. She doesn't have a legal team of the third floor to ring up. It's a very easy way to put a lot of pressure on. But fortunately, I am a member of the MEAA, the union here in Australia for journalists, and they do have some protection for people like me who are operating on their own. So without that, I would not be able to continue. And this all adds, I suppose, to the question you asked, to the energy to keep going. It requires, um, it requires a lot of mental tenacity, to be honest. And there are days when I think, oh, God, what I do is I take the other terrier for a walk, and that tends to work. <laughs> So how do one person outlets like Jackie Barker and Carol Altman get enough bargaining power to survive? Over in America, the Lion Group, which stands for Local Independent Online News Publishers, was set up a few years ago to do exactly that. Chris Crusom is their executive director. After working in newsrooms for 20 years, I know a lot of people who are great at journalism, but I could count on one hand the number of people who are great business people. One of the challenges in the space is people who just figure if I build it, they will come. If I start something, money will surely follow. And that's just not the case. We know from our research that the data is telling us is you have to start with a plan to make money. It's not just put up a website and advertisers will immediately start knocking down your door. When you're a one-person operation, you are the business side. You're the editorial side and the business side. It's all it's all one thing. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. So you're not really teaching people how to be journalists. You are teaching people how to be business people. They're you know trying to figure out how to turn their passion into their business. It's essentially not a journalism problem. It's a small business problem. How do I turn this this thing that's my passion into the thing that pays my bills? And the only answer that we have found is time and attention. You know, you can build an audience all day long. It's it's not really hard, especially with platforms, to find an audience. The challenge is getting money, getting revenue. And the only way to solve that challenge is by concentrating on that. Are you having success? I mean, one of the problems, obviously, of hyperlocalism is is sustainability. There is a problem of fatigue. There is a problem of burnout. Are you finding that you're actually solving those problems through the establishment of Lion? Right now, one of the things that research I mentioned showed is that about 50 of these things are launching in the States every year for the last five years. They're doing that despite the fact that there is no roadmap, right? So, so these are people by the dozens who are just getting started with things, even though they, they don't know where that road leads. The urge to do so is that strong. The, the need in their minds and their communities is that strong. So you can pour your heart and soul into a startup and it can absolutely wear you down and wear you out. Because you're the only person there, you sort of develop this unhealthy relationship with the thing that you created. So we're absolutely tracking those things right now. One thing I know that we have done is sort of force the platforms that control access to so much of this information, the, the Facebooks and Googles of the world, we sort of showed that this was a region that deserved investment. So finally, I think we've managed to put enough structure around the space to prove that it is an important part of the ecosystem going forward to the people who kind of like have a, should have a vested interest in building a stronger internet, right? Because for kind of a long time, it was faster, easier, and cheaper to build like a Macedonian troll farm or disinformation campaign. You could make more money that way than a local news website. But now, accurate local news is as important to a healthy democracy as clean water or clean air. And what are the ecosystems where you breathe that air? It's the platforms. It's Google and it's Facebook. And so they're stepping up in a, in a big way to try to 
support these entrepreneurs. So that's millions of dollars from Google and Facebook directly into the startup space and helping people get things started. And Substack, Substack Local put a million dollars into launching new publications in small towns. Hi, Genevieve Jacobs from Region Media with this week's news update, which comes to you from the top of beautiful Mount Stromlo. It is a glorious Canberra spring day. And but for the pandemic... In Canberra, the country's bush capital, one media company is proving local journalism can not only thrive, it can also make a profit. And for them, the way forward is exclusively digital. We've seen a lot of attempts to replicate the critical role that journalism plays in regional and rural communities. And I think most of them are not able to easily advance beyond the passionate single person or quite small operation. And look, they're great. They have real value. But I think they're a limited solution. That's not a way to continue to provide independent, balanced content and journalism to regional Australia. Region Media's audience includes around half a million monthly unique visitors and 1.3 million page views. We're talking to everyone. I'm Genevieve Jacobs. I'm the group editor of Region Media. We publish the Riot Act and About Regional, and they're both digital news platforms in Canberra and across the capital region of southern New South Wales. The Canberra region was an early adopter of local digital news. The popular Riot Act site has been around since the turn of the century. But five years ago, it was taken over by two entrepreneurs with a background in IT and the online real estate business. The platform, as it was in 2016, had about 124,000 unique readers per month, and we're now up to 700,000 unique readers per month, aggregated across our two major platforms and around about a dozen social media sites. We've also got around 350,000 social media followers. So it was a good proposition in the beginning, But taking some business smarts and then bringing in some competent journalism with some really strong traditional values has turned this into a bit of a powerhouse in the southeast. I mean, Genevieve, you seem to be bucking journalistic history here. I mean, we talk about the demise of local and regional journalism. We talk about the impossibility of making money out of regional and local newspapers. You've got a very different story, right? Well, we do. And I think this is the interesting thing about what we're doing, Nick, is that lots of people have very good editorial ideas about how to manage this stuff. Very few people know how to do the business. And we are entirely economically sustainable. We don't get any funding from the social media giants, and we are in the midst of the Google negotiations right now. We don't receive government funding aside from, I think, a very small public interest news gathering grant last year. We are sustainable on the business we do within this community. Um, So we do that with forward-facing advertisers and search engine optimised traffic. And in many ways, what we've been able to build is a, a bit of a replica of the old Fairfax Rivers of Gold, the great classifieds of the past. So we're grounded in strong relationships with local business and understanding people's search engine behaviour, the kind of information they're looking for. But they won't look for that information unless they trust us. So I've got about 27 staff here, almost all of them full-time, a number of contributors as well. So this is a fully-fledged media operation, and we're right up there challenging the Canberra Times, the other major media outlets in this region, and we're growing very quickly, which I have to say, after a lifetime in the media myself, is um, it's very refreshing to be part of it. 
we haven't got the shackles of the newspaper around our ankles. We've been able to discover a sustainable business model. We believe that we've got a replicable model that we can continue to iterate out when the conditions are right. You spoke there about the shackles of the newspaper. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, look, I think there's huge residual fondness for the physical object of the paper. But there are a couple of things that just make it simply economically unsustainable. And there's the cost of the printing. There's the cost of staffing those mastheads. You've got the distribution. You've got the sales. And we've got none of those costs. But we know from multiple research efforts all over the world that people are simply not buying them any longer. So news comes to people, sometimes incidentally, through social media often through habits of trust, and we think that the trust is the key thing. We think we can develop those trusted relationships with people digitally. And certainly we often see in this market 30 to 35,000 unique visitors per day, and we know that that's right up there with, say, the Canberra Times in this market. And so it's it's really working for us. When surveys are carried out, and, and there have been surveys in Australia carried out on this, people say we love having a printed newspaper. It means so much to us as a community. But what you're telling me is that they might tell pollsters that, but they don't actually go out and buy them. Look, I think we know, Nick, that there's a hard core of people who are passionate news lovers, but there's a huge variety of people who just don't get their news that way any longer. And we're certainly conscious here that we're reaching people who have not necessarily interacted with mainstream news before. And that's a really interesting thing to observe. One of my constant struggles is to get the readers to recognise, for example, what editorial and opinion pieces are. And it's dawned on me that this is because these are not the readers of the old broadsheets. These are not people who've connected with traditional media and shifted over. These are people who pretty much never did that, which is a really fascinating thing to grapple with. So, you know, yes, I've got a news market and I've got a newspaper market, but I've also got this other big chunk of people who may not have come across our kind of journalism ever before, and that is a fascinating challenge. That really is fascinating, isn't it? What you are essentially saying is there is an audience out there in regional Australia that really hasn't engaged with the traditional media in the past. And and that's where our new audience is. That's how we are going to sustain this thing. When I think about who's reading region media, the Riot Act and about regional our two platforms, I think about a massive slab of absolutely everyday, ordinary people from across the whole region. And one of the things that all of us who've made the transition from old school media to the digital platforms know is that it is a very rude shock when you get here and you know exactly who's reading what and what they're interested in. And, you know, it's quite shattering for everyone who's believed that in-depth political analysis on a daily basis or endless iterations of sport work. They, they just don't always do so. And last week, one of the best stories we did was that the Dobbinson's Bakery van and its fruit tarts are coming to my street in lockdown. And people said, how cool is that? How fantastic. But is that the danger that you end up doing the clickbait stuff that people want rather than the, the worthy reporting that people have traditionally associated with local newspapers? Well, look, you've got to do both. 
it's really important that you have the old-fashioned balance, the, the light and the shade. So I've got a court reporter, I've got a legislative assembly reporter, I've got a senior journalist who was chief of staff at the Canberra Times who really understands the political and economic factors at play here in the ACT. So I have always been very clear that we've got to do both and do both well. So if we go for things that are a little bit clickbaity, and I, I try to avoid that, then yes, we would devalue the product completely and we would devalue the trust that the community in general puts Genevieve, to those who say that regional and local news journalism is dying, what's your response? Oh, no, it's not. No, no, it's changing form. The values that underpinned it about serving the community, about being balanced and independent and calling power to account and engaging deeply with communities, they're as strong as they ever were. But the business model has fractured. I mean, it's probably almost beyond repair. And I, I don't think we all know yet how that's going to shake out. But we are really certain that this is still a fundamental cornerstone of democracy. And there's a critical need for people's stories to be told. But it's a transition point. I really think we're going to work our way through it and come out the other side smiling. And you're smiling right now because you are actually making some money. Yes, yeah, we are. <laughs> we are making money. After many, many long years spent in the media giants, when someone comes down from Sydney and tells you how everything's going to change and contract, and it's all going to be better, and you're sitting there thinking, oh, you know, all this means there's more to do and less people. It is so exciting to be working with an organisation and go, okay, let's let's push the button. Let's hire another journo. Let's get someone else on the business side. Let's talk about how we're expanding. I mean, it's thrilling. It is wonderful. Chris Cruson, journalism faces such a crisis of trust right now. But but what you've been saying is if if the journalism is done locally, if the journalism is done by people that readers know, then it bolsters journalism and truth-telling as a whole. Yeah, and I think transparency is a big part of that. People know what your motivation is, know what your background are, know who you are, see you at the school board meeting, they see you shaking hands at the awards luncheon for the high school football team, and, and you're, you're Nick, you do the news for the town. I know Nick, I see Nick all the time, right? That becomes a, a way where it's much harder to argue a partisan agenda because ultimately at the local level, a lot of that noise just, just is irrelevant. You know, what it sort of turned into here, what it reminds me a lot of is tribalism, is people cheering for football teams and my team's better than your team. And journalism kind of got wrapped into that, you know, bigger, I want to be right or I like rooting for the underdog. So my, my candidate is this and I'm still rooting for this presidential candidate who lost the election, you know, a year ago, but I still have his flag outside of my house because he's like the Dallas Cowboys. And I want everybody to know I'm a Cowboys fan. Journalism has really nothing to do with any of that. I mean, journalism had a bigger moment during Donald Trump's time because there was just so much great stuff for everybody to write about. The blowback for that was journalism being seen as the resistance, which is not its role. It's a constitutionally protected, here stateside at least, it's the only profession specifically mentioned in the Bill of Rights. Freedom of speech and of the press, it's a special thing. But it's also, at heart, a business. Treating it as money should fall out of the sky to do it. That's just not the way the world works. Chris, when I first started looking into this, um, I thought this episode was going to be a little bit like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, you know, traveling through a barren, devastated, very desolate and empty environment. But you've been in the space for a few years now, and you're more optimistic. 
Yeah, I think I got into this space for similar reasons. I thought it was going to um, need to be cleaning up the death of newspapers, but it's not about one thing that's dying. It's about what we're creating to replace it. And redefining that problem for me is is more important and seeing its potential and seeing how we can bring these people the resources they need to do what they want to do. And some of the answers are already right in front of us. So it's more about providing them with support, with companionship, with resources, technology, tools, training, and lifting them up and sort of fertilizing uh, this sort of helping the small furry mammals instead of worrying about the dinosaurs. That's where I am. From covering America over the last eight years, I saw how the decline of local newspapers contributed to the decline of US democracy and how the digital disruption that killed off so many newsrooms was a major factor in the political disruption which resulted in the rise of Donald Trump. When people lose faith in institutions, or in this case, lose those institutions altogether, it should come as no surprise that voters turn to individuals. One thing we're also seeing in the States is the rise of local news outlets that are controlled by political plutocrats, wealthy activists who want their media organisations to deliver election victories more so than impartial news. The process is called media capture. This episode really did raise my spirits. It was good to be reminded that there are people out there like the Terrier and the Troublemaker who really are committed to the kind of shoe-leather local reporting that's so essential for a healthy democracy. But let's not kid ourselves. When it comes to local journalism, there are just as many clouds as silver linings. In the past few weeks, the largest publisher of regional news in Australia, Australian Community Media, quietly announced it was reducing the number of printed editions of some of its mastheads. The regional media landscape still looks like a tough environment in which to survive. Local is the way to go, and particularly with COVID, people are more locally focused. They used to say all politics is local, all journalism is local too, right? Absolutely. I think it's about helping the next generation come along and inspire them to say, you know, come on, we've got to keep keep this kind of journalism up. This is important. And to keep it in places like Warrnambool, I think, is so important. So, Well... You could be the Rottweiler or the Pitbulls. The <laughs> Terrier sounds good to me. It's just really great to be part of it too. Right. I had to chat to you, Nick. I was looking forward to this. Oh, it was lovely to chat to you, Carol. Seriously, there's been a, I've, I've really enjoyed this morning. It's been great. Journo is produced by Deadset Studios for the Judith Nielsen Institute, which supports quality journalism and storytelling around the world. You can find out more about the Institute's programs and events at jninstitute.org. Make sure you follow the podcast in your podcasting app so you're alerted each time we release a new episode. Deadset Studios' executive producer is Rachel Fountain. Our producers are Margie Smithers, Nicole Kirby and Britta Jorgensen, with sound design by Bryce Halliday. Our managing editor is Kelly Reardon. The commissioning editor for JNI is Andrea Ho. I'm Nick Bryant, and coming up on Journal, The pandemic has changed our lives in so many ways, some of which may not even become apparent for many years to come. So what effect has COVID had on journalists who've often found themselves in the midst not just of a viral storm, but a media tempest as well? Well,